are sitting down. If you have a Bible, please open it to Romans chapter 11. If you didn't bring a Bible with you this morning, I hope that you can find one in the pocket of the pew in front of you, and you can find the passage that we will be speaking of, Romans 11, beginning in verse 33 on page 891 of that Bible. We have in, I think, a little under a year, covered the first 11 chapters of the book of Roman. Romans. This is over half of the book as far as the number of verses go, but we would kind of see this as the end of part one and the beginning of part two. Typically what we think of is that the first 11 chapters deal much with the theology that Paul wants to present in the book of Romans, and chapters 12 through 16 present a lot of the practical advice that he might have, and certainly that's not quite true as a hard and fast rule. Chapters 1 through 11 have much in the way of practical advice for us, and 12 through 16 have an incredible amount of theology in them. Nevertheless, it's a pretty good way of understanding the break. We would be wrong, though, to think that the book of Romans is meant and is present before us as some sort of systematic theology, as though everything that Paul could have said was neatly filed into the first 11 chapters of the book of Romans. It's not quite true at all. But as we come to the end of the 11th chapter, he does give this final momentous benediction as he comes to a close in his theological section. I think that this benediction is meant in particularly one verse, verse 36, in a sense to encapsulate and to summarize in incredibly succinct form what he has already been saying through chapters 1 through 11. Chapters 1 through 11 witnessed to our need of salvation, that we had a common sinfulness, that we were sinful, the Jews were sinful, all people of all stripes were sinful, whether or not they understood the God in heaven to be the one God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, or whether they were pagan and rejected all of the revelation that the world might give to them about this one true and living God, all are sinful and all need salvation. While we have a common sinfulness, we also have a common Savior. Jesus is the one who is our Savior. He was the promised and expected sacrifice for our sins, living grace given to us. The same grace that our forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, stood in in their day. Jesus becomes for us a new humanity. He gives us life from the dead and indeed victory over sin. That in turn led to our common sanctification in which the Holy Spirit, along with the Son, the Spirit is breathed out by God for us that we can learn to fight and defeat sin in our own lives, which gave way to Paul's discussion of our common selection and the election by God of people from every tribe, tongue, nation, and language for his own good purposes. At the end of all of this, we have Paul's beautiful doxology. It is a fitting way, I think, to summarize what we've just read what we've talked about over the past year or so. Let us read these verses, and then let us think specifically on verse 36 this morning. Read with me beginning in verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God! How unsearchable are his judgments, and how inscrutable his ways! For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor, or who has given a gift to him? that he might be repaid. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. This is the word of our God. 
This morning we're going to focus primarily on verse 36. We're going to talk about, for the vast majority of our time, that little statement for from him and through him and to him are all things. The first thing I want to point out is for from him. The source of the gospel is not accidental, but it is the Almighty. The source of the gospel is not accidental, but it is the Almighty. We need to see that Paul is here not simply talking about salvation. He says that all things come from him. He is clearly pointing not just to our salvation, but back even to creation. Creation, it seems, is impossible to separate from our salvation. After all, the God who has created us is indeed the God who has saved us. It's difficult for us to comprehend what it means for there to truly be nothing when God spoke it into existence. There was no space there was no time. We, we typically think of nothing simply as the, the vacuum of matter, that there was no matter there, but there was no place for matter to be. There was no time for matter to be. The most fundamental things in our world just didn't exist. There was nothing to cry out to God, make me. There was nothing to ask for God to help it come into existence. There was no being there to ask for being. God did this all on his own, by his good desire and indeed by his grace. He was under absolutely no compulsion. God lacked no good thing. He is not completed by creation. It did not make him more God than he was already, nor does it diminish him by mixing him up sort of with the matter of the earth. But the same God who made space and time was also not limited by those things. The God who is not limited by our will is also not limited by the way in which our wills exist in time. He saw through time. He organized, determined it, set seasons for nations to rise and to fall, set stars in their place, spoke of future events, and brought it all to be. Before time was a thing, God the Father had in place the sending of the Son for our redemption, for sins that had not yet even come into existence. We did not cry out to him. God did not leave our salvation or his gift of it up to chance for us. That hopefully he would provide it if we stumbled onto our need of it, if we sort of figured it out, if the dominoes fell just rightly and somebody somewhere would scream out, you know what we really need? We need a savior. God was not hoping that we would simply catch on to the problem. God was not waiting for our call. From before the foundation of the world, he had decided the course of events to bring salvation for people who had not even rebelled against him yet. God did not patiently bide his time for the right unfolding of events, as though something outside of his control could happen which would bring about the gospel. It was not an accident. It was not an unordained occurrence. It wasn't something that God secretly hoped would occur, but had no way of assuring us would occur. Rather, all of our salvation was planned it was performed, and it was purchased by God. Even in the passage we've already read this morning, God did not wait for Eve before he foretold of her seed crushing the head of the serpent. God did not wait for Noah to ask for a boat before he provided one. He did not wait for Moses to ask for instructions before he gave him. He did not wait for Abraham to ask for a promise before he provided it to him. He does not wait for Israel to ask for his presence before he gives it. And he certainly did not wait for us to ask for our redemption before he provided it. In all these things, God is the beginning. He is the source and he is the instigator. 
even and perhaps especially in our lives today, this is true. Before you knew of your sin, Christ was there. Before you heard of your damnation, Christ had died. Before you knew that you needed life from the dead, he had already been raised. Before you knew you needed good news, Christ was already being proclaimed. This is the beginning of grace, true, unmerited grace, the source of all that we have, of all that we need, of all that is good in this world comes from God. It is an unmerited gift in the fullest sense because it is never a reaction to us. It is given before we ever think to ask of a need. Sometimes people, I think, perceive it as though it is being done in response to us. It could lead you to the very wrong conclusion that God is kind to you, that God is good to you, that God is gracious to you because you've asked for that. But God is more kind and more good and more gracious than those things because he acts before you even think to ask. God rarely gives us what we ask for and always gives us what we need. To flip a saying of Jesus, if you ask for a stone, the Father is likely to give you bread. He will give you what you need before you can even think to ask of it. God's salvation did not wait on us to accidentally stumble over the truth. Rather, knowing all things, he planned and provided our salvation, for he is the source of the gospel. From from him are all things. Secondly, let's talk about through him. The means of the gospel is not our perspiration, but his person. It is in our perspiration but his person. God didn't give us an eightfold plan. He didn't give us rituals to attain to. He didn't give us a set of prayers to pray, a laborious maze to complete in order to be saved. He did not give us the instruction of Moses and the law so that we might find a path to tread to get to our salvation. The gospel is not a series of instructions on how we can achieve it on our own, but rather it is the declared fact that Jesus Christ has done everything that you need already. It is not what we do, and it is not through what we do that brings salvation to us. It's not how strongly you feel about God. It isn't the zeal and the passion that you have for following him, for reading scripture, for praying. It's not how clearly you think about these things and how much studying you can do and how in-depth you can be and the amount of knowledge that you can regurgitate to anyone who might ask. It's not how determined your gaze is to find and see Jesus Christ in everyday events. It's not even how well you act, the morality that you present before God. Rather, it is through the very word of God that salvation has come. And notice how closely this is tied even to the act of creation. In the beginning, God created all things through his word. He spoke and the universe came into being. He uttered his voice and through his voice creation appeared. And now through his word, there is a new creation. He planned And the word carried it out. He uttered truth and his son brought it to be. It is through God alone that salvation comes. It is not through your cooperating with him. It is not through your trying to strive to turn another corner, to turn over some leaves. It's not by making deals saying, God, if you will grant me salvation, I promise these things will be done with. I promise I'll clean up my act. I promise that I will get it right. 
It's not through making of deals, but simply by the word of God made flesh, dying for us and giving us new life. Friend, what, what is there to do in your salvation that God has not done? We were sinful. Christ prayed our price. We were cut off from God. Christ unifies us to God. We were due death. Christ died in our stead. We forfeited any gain from God, and Christ has made us co-heirs eternally with him. We have lost all control over creation and nature, and Christ is Lord over all. We have no good on ourselves to draw from. Christ obeys for us. We have no good in ourselves to draw upon, and Christ sanctifies us by his blood. We are poor and weak. Christ makes us rich. We are confused and lost. Christ gives us understanding. We have insatiable grief, and Christ comforts us. We ultimately have no strength in ourselves to stand before God, and Christ glorifies us. It's not just the gift. It's not just Jesus dying on the cross and being raised again. It's not just through Christ, but it's through the work of the Spirit. It's not the gift itself that has come to us that is a gift. It is even the fact that the gift is promoted throughout the known world. It is the gospel itself, not just the act, but the meaning of the act that comes to us by a very gift of God. What do you think would have happened if the Holy Spirit hadn't come upon the disciples? The disciples seeing Jesus killed, watching him get up from the grave, him coming to them, eating fish with them, saying, put your hands in the nails and the holes in my side, speaking to them for a couple of days and ascending into heaven. Do you think that the disciples would have looked and said, hey, I know what all of this means. Give me a pen and paper. We're about to do some theology. No, they, they needed the leading of the Spirit. This is the reason why Jesus promised, when I go to the Father, I will send the Spirit to you. The Holy Spirit, as Jesus says, leads them into all truth. Sometimes it was quite dramatic. Sometimes they moved slower to the truth. But without the Holy Spirit's leading, even if Jesus died and rose again, you would never have heard of the good news. Without the Spirit of Jesus working in his church, there would be no preservation of the gospel for us. Without the Spirit of Jesus working in his church, there would be no preaching of the gospel. Not only would the sacrifice not have been made without him, but even if that sacrifice was made, you would not know about it if not through the working of the Holy Spirit. It is all through God, through the person of the Word, the Son, and through the person of the Spirit. He is not just the source of the gospel. The gospel comes to us through him. Eventually, then, we would say that it comes to him. The end of the gospel is not doctrine, but it's doxology to him. The end of the gospel is not doctrine, but doxology. If you have had a rough night, you haven't listened to much of what I've said, blah, 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 he keeps going on, Jesus, Jesus, listen to this especially for the people of my church. There are a number of people, especially those who might run in the circles that, that we are more likely to run in, who play up truth as a necessary and important part of what we do. It is vital to our maintaining the name and the holiness of Jesus Christ in this world. 
To that I say amen and hallelujah. That work needs to be done and it ought to be done. Yet at the same time, we have to be very cautious and careful. Too many make it seem as though the truth is an end in itself. That what we need to do and what we ought to do is present the truth, take care of the truth, protect the truth, preach the truth. But the end of doctrine, the end of preaching, is meant to lead us into the worship of God. The end of truth is to praise God and to give him glory. Paul spent the better part of 11 chapters giving us insight into the plan of God, the wisdom of God, the unfolding character of God, into the very salvation that God has provided for us. These verses represent the natural ending of that. It represents a natural reflexive response that Paul has to these things. Who can know the mind of God? Praise him. To him be the glory forever and ever. The natural end of doctrine, the natural end of the gospel is the praise and the worship of Jesus Christ, God the Father and the Holy Spirit. It is not here doctrine, theology, teaching in the church. It's not here to make us smarter. Certainly is not here to show us how right we are. It's not here for fodder that we might argue better and even to bring heretics to heal. That's not the purpose of it. Each of those things is good. We can even further it. It's not here to promote good things. It's not here ultimately to preach the gospel. It's not here to encourage believers to fight sin or even provide hope for the future. Each of those things has an end in and of itself. The end of all of those things is the worship of God. Doctrine and truth cannot be ends in themselves. The ends is the joyous worship of God. The end is doxology. They are nothing but rails for the train of God's glory. Rails are needed and they're necessary. You can't get a train from point A to point B without them. But without the train, they are worthless. Absolutely and completely worthless. When people rail on and on about the truth, but speak little about the joyous praise of God, when doctrine ends with a period of an argument, instead of the exclamation point of praise, you've missed it all. And either the speaker, the writer, the author, or the reader, or the listener, someone has failed in their job to rightly understand what doctrine is doing there. Tracks, rails are not sufficient and good in themselves. Pastors, theologians, scholars can yell, implore, speak of the good of laying down the tracks, but that only matters so long as there is a train that is reaching a destination. Too often the tracks look like that little train that you have that goes around your Christmas tree. It just goes around and around and around, and it gets nowhere. It ends up nowhere. Why do we learn? Who is meant to learn doctrine and theology? Is it just pastors? But why have pastors learned doctrine and theology if not to teach? Then who are we to teach? Should it be other teachers? For what end? So that they can teach other teachers and they can teach other teachers? Going around. Should we 
just teach men because men are the ones who are going to be teachers. And then, obviously, if we teach men, then some of them will become teachers, and that's good, but that's still just going around. No, friends, we teach all theology. We teach everyone doctrine. We teach men. We teach women. By the way, women, so overlooked. Learn theology. Buy good books. Read good books. You don't have to just learn recipes on how to crock pot. That is not your job. As a Christian woman, if you never touch a crock pot again, you can glorify Jesus Christ with your life. You should definitely crock pot. Love me a good crock pot. However, I would much rather you drop them all and learn theology. And here's the reason why. Not because learning theology is important in and of itself. We teach not because the truth is ultimate. We learn not because the truth is ultimate. We do this so that we can be better equipped to praise and worship God. That is the task of our church. It is the task of every church and one that we must take seriously. To him are all things. Finally, let's focus on that last little line here. To him be the glory. The effect of the gospel is not hubris, but humility. It's not hubris, it's not pride, it's not arrogance in ourselves, but it is a humility. The gospel puts us in our place in one way or another. If you deny the gospel, in defiance, decide to stand on your own outside of the help of God, and trust the future of your own life and soul solely to your own hands, you will find that you are led directly into your destruction, and you will be exposed for your foolishness, stupidity, and your humiliation will be yours. You will be humbled. If you accept the gospel, you have to admit frankly, clearly, confessionally, publicly, that you have no merits in yourself and you are saved by something completely outside of you, which is nothing less than a statement of faith that Jesus Christ himself has done everything that you need. The gospel has to have this effect on us. Back in the third chapter, Paul has written the most succinct and, again, beautiful paragraph on what it means for us to be atoned for by the work of Jesus Christ and united back again to God as Christ has died a sinful death that we might be made right before God. He is our propitiation, taking the wrath of God from us and dying in our stead the very end of that, the one conclusion that Paul immediately draws from that is this, in chapter 3, verse 27. What becomes of our boasting? It says, it is excluded. We've mentioned this many times, but it's worth repeating. Faith and pride are mutually incompatible. Before God, they are oil and water. Saying that you have faith in Jesus Christ is an immediate death stroke to any pride that you should have. To claim one is automatically to deny the other. This is part of the meat of Paul's pronouncements here. The ESV translates this, the depth of the riches, but I think it means the rich depth. The rich depth of God's wisdom and knowledge. When Paul talks about the depths of God, he means the very essence of what God is, to be able to plumb them, to go down to the very center of who God is. We can't do this. They are unsearchable to us, and it is inscrutable. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 2, The Spirit, 
searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. His judgments, his ways are inscrutable to us. The way in which God has formed the world, moved the world forward, is utterly unknown to us. Paul does not have an overly rosy picture of the world. He talks in chapter 8 of believers being sheep led to the slaughter. He talks in chapters 9 through 11 of the inevitable consequence of denying Jesus Christ as hell eternal. Nevertheless, these things can't be known to us. We see evil around us. We might ask, why does God allow these things to be? We don't know, is what Paul is saying. People of the world can easily say things like, well, if God was good, there'd be no evil. If things were up to my power, I would just get rid of everything that was bad. Why doesn't God just act like this? Such, such statements are pretty typical for worldly people who want to complain about the way in which God runs the world. But they have to be atypical amongst people of the church. We are not like Job's friends who have very easy, pat answers for every little problem and pain and difficulty that comes the way of everyone on this earth. Every struggle that you might go through, they would be able to give you a clear and concise theological answer, which sounds great, but it's horribly wrong. We expect at the end of Job for those answers to be given to us, for us to find out why evil occurs, how does sin factor into the evil that happens to us and to others, and, and even how can we avoid it. But the answers are not given to us. The answer is simply this, I am God. If we are to summarize, it's my ways are inscrutable to you. You don't get to know because you can't possibly fathom what I do. Job 36 says this, which is echoed here in Paul, probably quoted here in Paul in verse 34. Behold, God is exalted in his power. Who is a teacher like him? Who has prescribed for him his way? Or who can say, you have done wrong? Who is able to stand to God and say, the way you have run this world is all backwards. Let me teach you. Let me show you. Let me counsel you on what ought to be done for good and hope and love. God has none of that. You might question the good of his plan. You might be upset at the damnation of unbelievers. You might be confused in your own suffering, but God's plan is perfect, good, and rather above our pay grade. In the end, we must also affirm that it is praiseworthy. Do we really think that we are smarter, better, wiser, more knowledgeable, and can concoct a more just plan than the God who has created all things by the power of his voice? No. We are simply his people. We simply trust in his goodness, a goodness that has been proven to us not only time and time again in our lives, but a goodness that has proven to us once and for all on the cross, where God sent his son to take our sin that we might not die, that we might not die before him forever in a hell that is in existence for those who continue to reject God and fight against him. And so we face the future without full knowledge of what's going to happen without knowledge of the good that might come to us or the evil that might come to us. 
so that in prison or in plenty, whether we are full with joy or empty with grief, we entrust ourselves to God. We cannot understand the good that will come through the things that face us in this world. We utter, therefore, humbly, and I do mean without a whim of irony or sarcasm, it is well with my soul. For from him and through him and to him are all things. May God have the glory forever and ever. Let us pray. Father, may we who profess to know you, to love you, to seek you, to live in the light of your own word, know these truths well, that we are made for your glory. But that glory, even as part of its gloriousness, does not diminish us. We are not under some sort of harsh ruler, a despot who works for his own good while ours subsides. Rather, your glory is such that it enhances ours. Our humility before your throne and your presence is what can make us truly and lastingly great. For from you, and through you, and to you are all things. And this indeed is for our good. We pray these things in the name of our glorious God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.